Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. I'm pleased to welcome back to Beyond Your Newsfeed my colleague, Professor Susan McCarthy, to talk to us about China. Listeners will remember Susan's several previous appearances on this podcast to discuss her academic specialty in Chinese politics. For several months now, China has been in the news a lot, whether in reports of the Chinese regime's response to COVID, authoritarian crackdowns on political dissidents and ethnic minorities, the recent party congress that extended President Xi's term of office, worsening tension, both diplomatic and military between the U.S. and China, and finally, the infamous Chinese balloon caper. With all that is going on in China and between the U.S. and China, I thought it would be a good time for Professor McCarthy to provide some learned insight into what we have been seeing in the media. Professor Susan McCarthy, welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, there's so much to talk about. I was really sort of torn as to where to begin. But maybe we should start out with that uh, party congress of the Chinese Communist Party that, that happened last October. It was the officially the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. I wonder if you could tell us a little something about what are these party congresses and how do they fit into uh, the operation of Chinese politics and government? Um, yeah, great question. So I think actually to start, I'll talk a little bit about China as a party state uh, and then get into the specific role of a party congress. Yeah, that sounds great, good. Um, so, you know, in democracies like the United States, parties are mediating institutions. So they mediate between the state, the government, and society or the citizenry or the electorate. Um, in democracies, parties seek power. They seek to win elections. They want to govern the state, rule the state, and some of them even want to make policy. Um, but parties aren't normally coterminous with the state, and they're certainly not superior to it. They're subject to the laws, the constitution, of a given country. Um, in China, the party is preeminent. It is superior to the state. So uh, in China, Xi Jinping, we all often read about him or hear about him as the president of the People's Republic of China, which he is. But the really important thing about Xi Jinping is that he is general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. That's, that's the important fact. In fact, he is president because he is general secretary. Um, uh, so, so one of the ways in which um, you see this preeminence of the party is in what's called cross-holding of positions. So, so China has a party and it has the government or the state. And if you looked at a flowchart of government ministries, government bureaus, it would look kind of like what you'd see in a Western democracy. You have the, the state council, which is like the cabinet. You have the role of premier, which is actually somebody else not Xi Jinping, and then you have all these ministries, and you have governments at the, the provincial level, the city level, the prefecture, county, town, you know, and there's a lot of governing, day-to-day -day governance that takes place that where the party is not directly involved. It's delegated to the government. But then there's this parallel hierarchy of the party, and in fact, uh, every leading cadre, every leading official in the state sector is a party member. Uh, so that's why, again, general secretary is the president and so on. Um, so, for instance, the governor of a province is always a party member and is 
typically also on the provincial party committee. Uh, the party secretary of a province typically also serves as the chairman of the Provincial People's Congress. So again, all this cross-holding of positions. Um, so, so party congresses, which you asked about, party congresses are important. Um, uh, largely, in, in some ways, they're ceremonial, not unlike you know uh, uh, party conventions in the United State, States, how those have become quite ceremonial. They tend to ratify things that have already occurred, although they also are opportunities that allow for uh, you know members of the party congress to get together and discuss things. But party congresses, they only happen every five years. Uh, they're very highly scripted and symbolic affairs. Outcomes are basically known, usually known in advance by, by leaders at the top. Um, there's often a bit of a guessing game, even a betting uh, game on who the new members of the Politburo Standing Committee will be, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, and I just want to say, too, that the National Party Congress, which is a CCP entity, is not to be confused with the National People's Congress, which is on the state side. Um, but anyway, so the National Party Congress, it technically elects the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Central Committee technically elects the Politburo, the political bureau of the com of the Central Committee, and then the the Politburo chooses the Standing Committee, uh, which is comprised of about seven people. Usually, currently, it's seven. Uh, that is that Standing Committee of the Politburo is the most powerful entity in China. Those those seven men are the key decision makers. Um, and then I just said technically, you know, these different levels elect the next level above it. But in reality, the, the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee are, are kind of self-perpetuating entities, that they select their own successors. Uh, there's also influence of retired party leaders in many cases who help to select uh, the next generation of leaders. Um, at least that's the way it's been over the last few decades. Um, I think what's different now is that Xi Jinping has personally amassed a lot of power and increasingly he he alone or he with his close associates has a say. Yeah, and the, and the Congress's most important ultimate outcome was to ratify the fact that Xi Jinping was general secretary of the party. That means the leader of the party. He's the leader of that Politburo, which is the most important uh, governing body. But then that also set him up to automatically become, once this People's Congress meets, to become president of China, right? Right. So, so the typically what happens is in the uh, the fall in October, November, every five years you have the Party Congress, and then the next March, February, March, you have the People's Congress, and then there's another meeting that happens too. So, the People's Congress, again, technically elects the president and the premier and all that. But again, it's already known in advance. Whoever the general secretary of the party is is going to be the president. And then <clears throat> currently the premier is this guy named Li Keqiang, who is has been number two in the Politburo Standing Committee. He's he's out. He's no longer in the Politburo Standing Committee, technically because he reached an age limit. Um, and then the new number two guy, Li Chang, is going to be the new premier. Um, so so again, cross-holding of positions. Right. And and this time, the, the choice of Xi Jinping as general secretary and then as president is kind of breaking a precedent that had been established 
a couple of decades ago, right? That there was going to be a limit on the number of terms that an individual would serve. And, and he has basically uh, broken that. Yes. So it, it's about violating norms, but also changing the Constitution. So China actually has a Constitution. And in that Constitution, it state, it, the old Constitution, or the, under the previous rule, uh, a president could only serve for two terms, two five-year terms. And so she had the Constitution uh, um, you know, revised a few years ago t uh, to enable him to basically serve indefinitely. Um, as president to be reelected indefinitely, I should say. So yeah, it, it, and he has not named or indicated any kind of successor, which is unusual too. So that's that's definitely a norm that he seems to have violated. Uh, so so in the post Mao period, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and other leaders uh, tried to kind of create more stable rules of succession and 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 both formally but also informally. And, and these are the rules and norms that she has really upended. Yeah, which means a, a real personalization of power. Whereas before, there seemed to be a sense that it was kind of a collective leadership. And whoever was the premier knew that their term would eventually end and they'd be replaced by somebody else. But now Xi set up a situation where you know, he, he is... Uh, in office as long as he wants, or as long as he has the political support to remain in office. Yeah. Um, so both Jiang Zemin uh, and then Hu Jintao stepped aside at the end of their second terms. Uh, Deng Xiaoping actually never held the position of president uh, or of general secretary of the Communist Party. So, so Deng Xiaoping was paramount leader of China, but never held. I mean, he was head of the Central Military Commission, but. Um, that's he was another example of how you have a lot of informality in Chinese politics. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. just to clarify, Deng Xiaoping was the leader who, who basically took over after the death of Mao Zedong, right? Yes, and who implemented a whole series of economic and also political reforms. Right. Uh, and actually created the China we have today, right? I mean, yes. The, 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 the opening up of the market economy, the privatization of the economy, and, and all that. That was Deng's work. Right? Yes, absolutely. Right. So... And there was an incident that was widely reported in the press last October of, of Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao being escorted out of the meeting. And he was the previous president. And uh, uh, can you say anything about that? Was that significant or was that simply, or do we know exactly what happened? Um, I, I don't know exactly what happened. I certainly think it's significant because these are such scripted affairs. Um, you know, I, I think it was a very much a symbolic sort of display of Xi's power uh, showing that, you know, you know, again, as I mentioned in the past, retired party leaders former party leaders have exercised considerable influence over the like the selection of of t other top leaders, current um, Politburo Standing Committee members, and so on, and uh, and also had influence in other ways. And I think she was making it very clear that he's not influenced by these retired elites. Uh, he has no need to listen to them if he doesn't want to. And and it's interesting that the new Standing Committee, the Politburo, really is all she loyalists. There are no members of other factions or other uh, leaders. Um, you know, supporters in there. So, so I think it was very symbolic. 
so can we say that she has become the new Mao? That he's amassed the kind of power that Mao Zedong had for so long? In in some respects, yes. But I would say he's very different from Mao. Um, that he certainly has more power, I would say, than any leader since Mao. Uh, Mao Zedong, though, was, you know, he really tried to stir it. He liked to stir up the masses. He was committed to revolution. Um, he stirred up the masses to attack the party as an institution. That was a cultural revolution. Uh, yeah, and, and many other campaigns, too. But um, and, and Mao was very suspicious of party bureaucracy, of, of, you know, the bureaucracy becoming too ossified and top-down and um, remote from the masses, so to speak. <clears throat> and, uh, and he kind of liked instability, I would say, and profited from it, where Xi Jinping does not care. He doesn't desire to create instability. It's, so in that way, I'd say he's the opposite of Mao, that he, he wants to strengthen the party uh, as an organization, as an institution. He wants to really cement its hold over Chinese society. So, so in that way, he's very different from Mao. But I would agree that he has more power than any leader since Mao. Yeah, but that's an important difference, that, that he really is not a revolutionary, that he, he wants to create a kind of stable, strong China with the party in control. Yes, and, uh, and not working towards revolution. Right. I, thi I think the, the goal is it's party control for the sake of party control. I actually had this conversation with someone a couple weeks ago. I think, he, I think she is a Leninist in the sense he believes in the vanguard party, but it's the party for the party's sake in, in perpetuity. And, and he certainly has no interest, I think, in divesting the, the property-owning classes of their resources and achieving communism. That's not in the cards. Right. So, uh, and Xi has taken uh, steps to uh, increase the party's control over Chinese society as well in, in recent years, right? That yes. That's been part of what he's done. So what are some of the things that's happened there to, to sort of increase the party power? And well, there have been some... Uh, kind of, I guess, campaigns or crackdowns on various industries. So, so um, you know, there's been a crackdown on parts of the tech industry, um, including over Ant Group, Alibaba, the the large conglomerate head that has been up until or has been headed by Jack Ma. Although Jack Ma has now announced that he's giving up control over Ant Group. But um, so, so you know, Jack Ma. I think it was late 2020. He made some public comments criticizing the party, or sorry, criticizing the, the Chinese financial uh, regulatory institutions. Um, and in response, well, he kind of disappeared for a few months and wasn't heard of, and then his uh, various business deals were canceled. Um, so, so that's a good indication of the, of the leadership flexing its, its authority over somebody in private business, somebody very powerful. I mean, I think he has a net worth of around close to 60 billion or somewhere around there. Um, so, so that's one example. There's crack so that would be equivalent to uh, Joe Biden uh, calling in uh, Elon Musk and putting him out of business yes. for a while and telling him, giving him instructions about how he should behave. Yeah, and, 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 then, right. and having him detained for incommunicado for right, a couple months. Right, right. Can okay. you imagine Elon without Twitter? Right, I know. So... So that's very. That's I think it's very important to emphasize that we think of China now as having this, you know, capitalist economy with these, you know, billionaires, 
uh, who, who in, in financial terms, are on the level of people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and the like. But their relationship to uh, the political leadership is very different. They have to make sure that they don't alienate uh, Xi and the party. Right? Abso- absolutely. Um, right. And we actually see the, the party uh, asserting its presence in the private sector in other ways, too. So, so um, the Chinese government still owns some state-owned industry, um, but you have this massive private sector, and, and the private sector generates most of China's GDP, its gross domestic product. And produces a lot of the things that Americans yes. consume. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but for the last 15 or so years, well before she uh, you know, became general secretary, actually, the CCP has been engaged in a, an, an effort to expand its presence in the party secretary. So, for instance, requiring firms that have a minimum of three party members in, you know, as employees, they have to allow those, they're required to allow those members to set up party branches. So, um, so private firms have party branches in them. And this, this rule extends to foreign companies. So, you know, Disney in China, Intel in China, Walmart in China, they all have party branches or even party committees in them um, made up of employees who are members of the Communist Party. Really? Yes. That's, that's amazing. Do, yes. Do the people at Fox News know about this? I would think this become would become a whole Tucker Tucker Carlson evening to yeah, talk maybe about it the, should. the Chinese <laughs> controlling Walt Disney and uh, well, and, this uh, this is the question is to you know what to what extent do these Communist Party committees have a say over corporate governance? This is like the big question. Uh, in many ways, what this was about was the Communist Party was worried. So so back in the Maoist era, you know, all major industry was state controlled. You didn't have profit-driven firms, you had state-owned firms, and every firm was essentially a, an, an element or a part of the government, and you had a party uh, presence in all firms. When you got the creation of this vast, you know, diverse private sector, all of a sudden there are massive parts of society and the economy where the CCP has no presence. Um, and so the party was worried about becoming irrelevant and really not having any influence over people's lives. And so the push to to make sure that private firms had CCP branches was was in large, it wasn't about controlling private firms. It was about maintaining a party presence, maintaining their connections to party members, because you have 90 plus million party members and there was a worry that these people never engaged with the party. They just hap- happened to be members of the CCP, but they, mm. on a daily basis in their work lives, they didn't have any interaction. And so it was really initially about creating cohesion in the party itself. Now it seems like in some industries and in some firms you're starting to see more you know greater assertiveness on the part of some of these party branches to have a role in corporate governance and even oversight. So so this is the big question is what you know do these morph into something into entities that are demanding more of a of a biz, say over business activities. Right. And could this affect the economic perf- the performance of the Chinese economy? Do you think, or is, but certainly the the party itself is very concerned that the Chinese economy grow and be healthy, though, right? Yes, um, although you know, she has been willing to, you know, stick it to business and at the risk. I mean, she has done a number of things that have threatened growth or undermined growth. Right. 
um, uh, you know, zero COVID, for instance. Right. Well, maybe like zero COVID. Yeah. So, so maybe we should talk about that, that a bit. So what was zero COVID all about? Why, how did that come about? Why was that China's particular response to the COVID epidemic? So I, I think some of this goes back to the first few months of the COVID pandemic and the success of the Chinese government at getting COVID under control. I mean, they were very successful. They mobilized the the power of the state, the party, the masses to really seemingly stamp out COVID. Um, and, and so it worked. So, so this initially worked. And I think in a sense, this became, she became so associated with this this containment policy that that's kind of what happened going forward. Right, yeah, like incidents of COVID really were very, very low in China as compared to the United States where there were efforts, even under President Trump, to uh, require uh, ma- masking and, and social distancing and the, our, our economy was shut down for a while. But then it reopened and there was a lot of pressure uh, to, in fact, end those measures. Uh, but that didn't happen in China. Uh, and whereas the United States saw great increases in COVID cases and then hospitalizations and death, that didn't happen initially in China, right? Right. And and I, I still think that, again, there's not a lot of news coming out, even though initially in December and early January, the the spread of COVID in China was, was all over the news. It's kind of disappeared. I I assume it's probably still spreading through the villages, but we're just not hearing about it. I'll, though I do think it's largely peaked in um, urban areas. Yeah, um, that's that's after she uh, re- lifted, lifted the, yeah. the COVID restrictions. Right? But but even with the spread of COVID, I don't think I think China is still going to end up better off in terms of death rates than the United States. I mean, they, you know, we've had successive waves in this country. Uh, and you know, over a million dead. So I, I think, in terms of percentage of the population, you know, China is still going to have a better outcome than the U.S. has. Right. So, so the long crackdown uh, allowed the passing of perhaps the more severe variants, and now we have COVID. The current COVID variants seem to be less severe. No, I, I is don't. I there's mixed results on this. So that. Omicron seems less severe, but I think that's largely because the population either is in the U.S. is vaccinated or they've already they already have COVID antibodies because they had COVID. But in terms of people who are, what is the phrase, immunologically naive, COVID is no less severe than, say, uh, the original COVID, maybe maybe less severe than Delta, which seemed to be more lethal. But but Omicron is not less severe. And so. Uh, that's 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 a worry uh, about it spreading so quickly in China is that they you know, right and and China adopted this COVID lockdown response rather than vaccinations. What was the basis of that? Yeah, they did vaccinate, but they had made some uh, bizarre and I think not very smart vaccination decisions. So. So they vaccinated people who were going to, you know, frontline workers or people of working age who'd be out in the community. They thought was like, let's vaccinate them. And then if they have elderly people living in their homes, then those elderly people will be protected from getting infected by their, you know, the fact the others are vaccinated. And so there was a there was a push to vaccinate some elderly, but the rates were 
you know, they didn't get anywhere near what they needed in terms of percentage. Um, it's interesting. So China began another round of vaccinating the elderly, I think on December 1st, before zero COVID was lifted. So, so they had actually, I, I think what happened in the end is that, you know, they saw that Omicron was surging. Omicron was more, it, it was, it was more, um, what's, it was more infectious. It, right. it was more infectious than previous variants. And so it was starting to really spread. And there was a realization that they couldn't keep controlling it. They started a, a, a process that had been in the works to vaccinate more elderly people. I think Omicron just got out of control and that they thought they could control it better than they were able to. And then these demonstrations happened in response to a, a fire in the city of Urumqi that killed people who were locked into their apartment buildings. So you had this public outpouring of anger. And, and I think that, and again, I'm not sure about this, but my sense is this was a convenient excuse to lift the restrictions that they were going to li lift anyway. I, I think w one thing I've heard is that, and again, this is speculation, but one thing I've heard is that the, the leadership wanted COVID to work its way through uh, the population before the March meeting, this month's meeting of the, the National People's Congress, the, um, which again happens every five years. So, so that in a sense, this is like, get it out of there, you know, let it run through the population. And then by the time we get to the, uh, the, the meeting of the NPC, it'll be history. Now that's interesting because the, the narrative, narrative, at least in some of the US media was that the zero COVID was ended because of these protests that, that somehow they, it was put in a kind of a, a democratic narrative that some of the people were rising up they weren't going to stand for being locked up all the time, and and uh, but you're suggesting something very different that the party all along was going to knew that it couldn't control the spread of Omicron, and it was going to end zero COVID, and so these protests could become a protect pretext, so they could appear democratic, but actually it was it was in the end an autocratic move. Yeah, I don't want to totally downplay the protest because I do think that the regime is somewhat, uh, it is sensitive to popular opinion. And so, you know, not so much that it's responding to democratic pressure, but hey, let's do something that's going to completely diffuse the protest so that they'll go away. So, right. so I think that that was probably a consideration because the, the government does respond to popular protests uh, you know, sometimes favorably or in ways that to, to mollify them. So I think there was an effort to mollify protests and just to make them go away, uh, which they did. <laughs> right. And th but this, at the same time, they had a crackdown of, yes. of, of arresting people who were perceived as leaders of protests. Yes. So it's kind of a, uh, kind of a double movement there. Uh, but then you're suggesting they wanted Omicron to, to surge and then it, it, would, it would die down by by March, so that uh, in the press just a couple of days ago, there was this uh, 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 report on a, a, a new meeting at, in China where they declared their own, their COVID policy perfect. Oh yes, right? that, <laughs> it's been perfect all along. <laughs> yeah, so so that that kind of reinforces this narrative that well, you know, we now have made these decisions, and Omicron is in our past, and we did everything right, and. You know, blah blah blah, and we can go on. Yeah, right? and and I do think too that you know, so I think there was a recognition that Omicron was spreading. Uh, I don't want to say they had planned this all along, but but 
you know, there was a recognition that they probably couldn't contain it. And also there was a recognition that China had really harmed its economy uh, and that they, if they wanted the economy to get anywhere back on track, they would have to lift these restrictions. Right. And it, it certainly did. And yes. We, and, and the harm to the Chinese economy has affected the world economy yes. as well. So, so now maybe the economy can, can, can get back. But so that's a good you know, segue into another topic I'd like to talk about, and that's the Chinese economy. Uh, you talk, we talked a little bit about uh, the, uh, the party wanting to exert control of the economy. But what do you see are some of the challenges for the Chinese economy in the years to come? Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so, you know, one challenge is um, what's called decoupling. That I mean, you see this between the U.S. and China, where the you know certain there's decoupling in certain industries, like the chip industry, and and where the United States uh, and some other Western uh, countries are looking for ways to start producing in their own countries products that previously they've sourced from China. Uh, and in the U.S., it's especially around high tech. I think the evidence of decoupling is mixed. I think uh, there are lots of U.S. corporations that are eager to get back and to kind of reinvigorate their supply chains and their, their mm. relations in China. Um, I mean, I think China China's biggest problems going forward are going to be things like um, – you know, it, the decline of the population decline, demographic decline, uh, the aging of the population. So, so these are actually things that are not unique to China as a communist country, but things that you see in Japan or Italy or other, other you know, advanced industrialized nations that have older populations and that aren't that open to immigration. Yeah, but certainly the Chinese demographic problem was uh, exacerbated by the, the party's policy of the one child, yes. right? Yeah. So that oh, yeah. For for several decades, Chinese couples were allowed to only have one child, right? Yes, yeah. And now that's coming back to... Well, it's been lifted, but there's no evidence that couples want to have more children. That's right. the problem. Right. Yeah. So they created a... They first of all mandated this, and now they've created a culture where there's an expectation that you only have one child, right? That, and also, I mean, it's become so expensive to, for urbanites to raise a child. And, and you know, education uh, is so competitive in China. Like, you know, trying to get your child to in a position where they can go to university is extremely expensive and difficult. Um, so, so there, you know, along with the crackdown on the tech industry, there has been a crackdown in the education industry in China. Uh, in China, there has been this whole um, set of... of you know, I mean, kids have, they go to school, but then there are these cram schools uh, and there's a lot of private tutoring, you know, for-profit private tutoring. And and the government has cracked down on for-private profit tutoring. It's, it's shut down all these cram schools. Um, and, and it's understood that one reason it's doing so is to, in a sense, um, eliminate some of these, you know, uh, basically make it more affordable for families to raise children where they don't feel like they have to right. send their kid to cram school because they can't. Uh, that these are responses to the, the pressures on middle-class Chinese people who, um, who they don't want to have more than one child because how can you afford to put all these kids through cram school as well as everything else? Yeah, so that they, they really need more uh, higher birth weight so they have more workers for the future. Yes, yeah. And the like, you know, which highlights, you know, a, a connection that I... I, uh, I think it's very important that's often overlooked the connection between demographics and economic success. 
we ignore that in our country that that the uh, a lot of the projections for like slower economic growth in the United States is because of declining population. And, yeah. And, and the and the aging, aging and the yeah. aging of the population. Declining working declining age. Declining working yeah. age population and and so that's kind of a, a law of economics that's true everywhere and if you're going to have a thriving economy you need people. In spite of all the technology in spite of all the talk about robotics and stuff in the in the long run you need people for an economy to work and the chinese are discovering that yes okay. oh yes <laughs> okay all right uh let's talk a little bit though also about some of the the, the politics in china uh, we've seen this uh increase in uh xi's power the 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 push to increase the presence of the Communist Party throughout communist society. And along with that, it's gone a lot of authoritarian action, right? Uh, political repression. And that seems to have increased quite a bit in the last few years. Yes. Um, so you certainly see this in places like Xinjiang, the, which is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, the, the westernmost province of China. Um, yeah, so Xi Jinping, you know, no tolerance for anything that threatens instability, um, willing to really be quite brutal in, in, in the treatment of some, some of China's citizens, Muslim minority citizens, uh, to ensure stability. Uh, you know, similar, uh, similar approach in Tibet, although in Xinjiang you've had the creation of all these detention camps, and now many of those people who were detained have, have been convicted and imprisoned. Uh, for various crimes. Um, so, so yeah, so there's been a real crackdown on, um, on, on parts of society. And then, I mean, she has done a number of other things. So he's, he's pushing this campaign to revitalize China's excellent traditional culture. He's kind of, you know, called for various rewritings of history uh, and, and a campaign against or d denounced what he calls historical nihilism, that is historical accounts of, like I said, the Chinese Communist Party or even Chinese past that, that puts China or the CCP in a negative light. So, so this is affecting scholarship um, and what kinds of things get published. So, so that's interesting, Susan. So, so essentially the, the party is now very interested in what like academics are publishing and saying about history. And uh, of course that resonates a little bit in this country. We suddenly we're having a big debate about you know, what can be taught in school and CRT and uh, all of that uh, business. Absolutely. So, so it happens in here too, but in, it's going on in spades in China that the G wants to really control the narrative of how the people understand their history and the, and the place of China in, in the world. And there's also uh, an increase of nationalism, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, the, the increase of nationalism, it's... It's hard to gauge. I mean, it, you started to see surges of nationalism in the late 90s. You know, there was the U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, you know, uh, in the former Yugoslavia. Oh, yeah, that was, that was like back in the 90s. That, yeah. And that was supposed, the U.S. said it was an accident. An accident. Right? Uh, and that sparked a lot of, like, nationalist protest in China. You've, you have a, you know, a lot of nationalism was kind of nationalist protest, which was encouraged by the regime, or at least tolerated, was focused on Japan for a while. I think what's different in recent years is that 
at least during the Trump administration, the Chinese foreign ministry became overtly kind of and aggressively nationalistic in its pronouncements, partly on, you know, on Twitter, for instance. Uh, you had the rise of what's called wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, wolf warrior is the name of a, a very nationalistic movie that was very popular, is very popular in China. And it's a, a movie that depicts, you know, very assertive, successful, aggressive China. And but actually things have toned down a bit since now that Trump is no longer in office. I mean, Trump was I don't want to blame Trump for this. He, I'd say he's partly responsible for raising the temperature of the relations, but some of it was coming from the Chinese side. Uh, but I do think that the temperature has actually cooled a bit in terms of rhetoric uh, between the chi China and the U.S., believe it or not. Mm -hmm. so, so that's, well, that's interesting, uh, which leads to, I think, another topic, and that's uh, Chinese-U.S. relations. Because the perception is that the, that things are getting worse, uh, and that yeah. probably started <laughs> while, while Trump was president. Though, though there were signs even under Obama, right, that uh, things were not, you know, all that great between the U.S. and China, uh, as opposed to you know a few years earlier when the United States seemed to be, uh, you know, uh, promoting or or very happy about China and and very eager to develop relationships with China. Uh, but, but but how would you describe like the state of relationship right now? Well, if, I think you're absolutely right to note that this predates the Trump administration. And, and a lot of it is coming from the Chinese side where, you know, and, and some of, the, of this is to be expected. I think that China has is the number two economy in the world. And it is, uh, you know, for a long time, China followed the path uh, that Deng Xiaoping set out to basically, um, you know, sort of abide by international norms and hide your power. And um, again, we'll have to revise that. Um, but anyway, so for a long time, China was was not assertive, overly assertive and aggressive in its international posture. But it really in the last, I would say, yeah, 13 years, since about 2010 or so, um, you start to see more assertiveness, even aggression. There was uh, a spate of, and there still is, this effort to create um, islands out of out of atolls in the South China Sea, out of basically coral reefs, transforming them into um, uh, islands, and therefore Chinese military bases that they use to expand their their military um, uh, and and uh, you know sort of state sovereignty in the South China Sea. Um, uh, but yeah, so as far as U.S.-China relations go. Things definitely are, are not great. Um, uh, you know, just in the last few days, we've heard um, news that the, the Biden administration is concerned that China may arm Russia, for instance. So, so a lot of this current focus is on the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so the Biden administration is apparently trying to, you know, secure agree or support from other Western nations that they will oppose China if it does try to arm Russia. I don't know if that China is actually intending to arm Russia. Um, I have questions about that, but but certainly the, the relations between China and the U.S. are particularly fraught at the moment. And China still uh, says that Taiwan is a part of China, and, and the United States kind of recognizes that. That's been the, the, the policy in the past, but there's now a real concern about uh, the Chinese might uh, move aggressively against Taiwan. Uh, 
but do you think that's? I don't think that's that's going to happen in the near future. Um, I think uh, somebody somebody actually on Twitter, I forget who it was, made a really good point that if China was really planning on ramping up or planning on invading Taiwan anytime in the near future, could be anytime in the next year or so, that you would start to see a, a, a diversion of like investment towards particular industries and away from others. You'd, you'd be able to see things in China's economic behavior and even social behavior and uh, institutional actions that would indicate that they were gearing up for war. Um, for, an, for an invasion. So again, hopefully I won't have to uh, eat my words, but I don't see it in the near future. You know, I think, the, I think the best thing we can hope for is just a continuation of the status quo that everybody says, yeah, yeah, there's one China and Taiwan is a province of China, but you know, Taiwan is a democracy and you should invade. So. Um, and if you're right about Xi, uh, his concern for stability and control and the absence of chaos, there's nothing more chaotic than a war, right? Uh, if you engage yeah. in, certainly Putin has discovered that, right? In invading Ukraine, he thought it would be a quick thing, but now he's bogged down in a war, and that's really disrupted, you know, uh, the life of everyone in Russia at this point. And I, I, if Xi is, as you say, interest in stability, it's questionable that he'd want to yeah, take so that kind of an action. I, I agree with that. On the other hand, she has done things that, you know, again, people in retrospect think are kind of dumb and, 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 and examples of overreach. Uh, and there's also just the problem that as an authoritarian leader who's surrounded himself with loyalists, he may not be getting very good information. If everybody is too afraid to speak truth to power, then, you know, are people going to tell him this is a bad idea? If the Chinese economy flounders, if if you know she feels that his own power somehow be, or legitimacy becomes insecure, he may see this as an as a reason to embark on some military expedition for glory's sake. I mean, he's he has said things in the past that indicates that he would like China to return to the to the motherland. Uh, and so, you know, I, th I think there's always a danger when you have one leader in power who is um, insulated from public opinion and possibly even insulated from the truth. Right, and he certainly wants to uh, establish China's presence in the world uh, in lots of ways, and, and that would be uh, in military competition and the like. So Yes, I, yeah. So that's, that's one thing we can hope for is that China continues to desire status in the world and continues to desire respect from other nations and, and recognizes that invading Taiwan would, you know, really be, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot, you know, as well as destroying Taiwan. Right. So, so maybe we should say a few things about the famous balloon. Uh, I was thinking of that a little bit in the context of, I've read a lot about the extent of surveillance within China that is certainly uh, really quite remarkable, right? You, you can't go anywhere in China without being photographed, correct? That's true. Yeah. So, so sending balloons around the world maybe is kind of connected to that. We're going we're gonna to watch what goes on everywhere. Yes. So one thing I found, well, there are a couple of things I found really interesting about the whole balloon episode. For one thing, 
in the weeks prior, we had been talking about Taiwan a lot. And then all of a sudden the balloon thing happens and then nobody's talking about Taiwan anymore. So in a, in a weird way, I feel like it actually kind of lowered the temperature a bit and we weren't talking about yeah. possible invasions. And yeah, it's, 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 it's like, a, look at that <laughs> shiny object over there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot less confrontational to, to worry about the balloon yeah. rather than, you know, whether or not China's going to invade Taiwan. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it to me, the whole thing is very interesting. Of course, we found out that there have been multiple balloons that have been sent over the U.S., that the, the United States actually knew that this balloon was had lifted off from Hainan Island and was on its way, and and that, uh, you know, they, they fly over the United States and the U.S. intelligence services or military, basically, they don't announce it, but they, they try to learn, they, they study it and try to gather information on it for their own sake. So, you know, right. um, I guess what happened in this particular instance is that some civilians in Montana happened to look up and see it, and yeah. the rest is history. Yeah, and, and so the American military was forced to destroy it and yes. lose the opportunity to gather information about how yeah. the Chinese well, are. Well, now they, now they have it because they, you know, they were able to get it out of, off the ocean floor, right. I guess. Another thing that I found interesting about the balloon episode is that after – after it was discovered, the the Chinese government actually kind of sort of apologized. They were somewhat conciliatory about the whole thing, which again is very unusual. Although then when the U.S. shot it down, they said that was that was overkill. So, uh, but they didn't deny it, and they did kind of apologize. And again, in a weird way, that you know it could have been an opportunity. Maybe it was for there to be some dialogue behind the scenes between the Biden administration and, and the Xi administration. So I don't, I don't know. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, Susan, this has been a very uh, interesting conversation about what's going on in China. Uh, I think uh, we've learned a lot about very aspects. We could probably go on for yes. a long, long time <laughs> about all the things that are happening in China. But uh, thanks so much for being with us today on oh. Beyond Your News Feed. And look forward to having you back again. Uh, to talk about further developments in China, as I'm sure there will be. Thank you. I uh, hope to come back. Okay. And thanks to our uh, intrepid uh, producer, Giovea Harris, who is going to uh, make us uh, uh, sound very well, very good when she edits this podcast. And uh, thanks also to the Providence uh, Department of Marketing and Communications, Joe Carr and Chris Judge, who continue to support the podcast. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, please keep listening and tell your friends about Beyond Your News Feed. <laughs>